again, if, if you gather something and I gather something and somebody else gathers something, how do we know, how do I know what you know? How do you know what I know? Welcome to The Circuit Magazine, the number one source of information on protection matters, the industry-leading magazine for all security professionals who want to stay ahead of the game. Pre-incident indicators helping us with prevention. Today, John Moss and myself, we're going to be hearing from Rick Shaw, CEO and founder of Awarity out of the States, specifically Vegas. Lots and lots of case studies uh, we we know of, of course, from that uh, that part of the world. Um, where can we go with this today, John? Because it seems to me that there are a lot of technology solutions that would like us to collate a lot of data I, I just don't know what level of protector this is relating to. Okay, so I think this can go in a lot of different ways. And, you know, from the offset, let me say, I'm really looking forward to this myself because I think there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of area uh, for where this can be implemented, where this could be really successful, really useful. But I'm sure it's not for everyone and if it is, I'm, you know, I'd like to know how that can be done. I think so. And, and you know, I guess it requires a, a, an understanding of how your team works and how you'd like it to work. So if you want everybody to collect data, good. But does that take them away from their day job? What sort of advanced work does everybody have to do? And then how do you deal with information that hasn't come from your team? It's come from the general public. It's come from... Uh, a, you know, a tip off. Um, it, it begins to sound like an EP uh, operation is is run, you know, by a government agency, which it which it of course is not. So so there's always going to be that balance between a government agency with lots of resources, people, and command structures, and a private organization. Um, do you do, do you think that's a good way to look at it? Yeah, well, I mean, you hit the nail on the head there. I think at least certainly as it sits in my head when I try to think about this. You know, I, I look for a comparison and naturally, you know, government agencies are the best place to look, you know, the military and so on, as to how um, software platforms and processes like this can be implemented. So that naturally leads you to think, well, this is beyond the scope of most uh, operations that we run. It's just, it, it's beyond the budget. And even if it's not beyond the budget, it might be beyond our resources and assets or to the point where, you know, as you suggested there, that it actually becomes more of a hindrance than it is an asset. A hindrance only if we can't uh, harness it. So, you know, the promise of some solutions out there is that it's good for the solo operator. Uh, the, the promise of some of these, um, you know, data aggregation solutions and, uh, you know, workforce management s systems is that it's good for uh, one employee. It's good for 100. Um, I guess we just have to work out how many people are doing advanced work on any given job and then who disseminates that information once we've collated it. Um, and then there's that extra topic, which I think, you know, celebrity uh, protection is well aware of, you know, tips about, oh, I'm going to marry your principal next week, says somebody crazy in the audience. Um, you know, what do you do with information like that? Um, I, I, I think that's it. it ra ra rather than just saying, you know, some people are too small, some people are too large. Um, how, how, how much appetite do you think the community will have? for saying that everybody needs to do pre-incident indicator research for their advanced work? Well, I think anybody would have an appetite for it so long as they could see the payoff, so long as they knew that there was a reward and it was going to be beneficial and not just taxing on, on the team's resources. I mean, I'm really interested to see how, you know, the solo operator can benefit from this because, uh, you know, my uneducated mind on the topic just says to me that for this to work in, in in that sort of way it would have to be a centralized solution that people uh you know have their own login for so we're all collating data and we're doing it for the 
you know, the, the wider benefits. So we would, you know, we would have somebody like a centralized SOC who, you know, collects this information, these patterns of life, and either, you know, you, you buy into that and you're supplied information that they deem as relevant, you know, to your client, your mission and so on, or you're able to tap into it as a source of information and be able to extract from it what you need. But then there'd be all sorts of, uh, you know, data privacy and so on uh, that would come into play with that. So I'm, I'm not quite sure how that would work, but, you know, really interested to hear in that, uh, you know, somebody put across an argument for that. Well, let's look at it because the on-march of technology with a promise for the protector will not stop, right? So we have to, you know, distill it, look at it, and actually make use of our guest today, Mr. Rick Shaw, uh, CEO and founder of Awarity. Let's look at the topic of pre-incident indicators helping us with protection. And now, let's meet one of the contributors to The Circuit magazine. Pre-incident indicators helping us with prevention. Today, we're delighted to welcome Rick Shaw, CEO and founder of Awarity. And we're going to look at how this applies to the EP community. It's a great pleasure to have you on. How are you doing? Very good. Thanks for having me on. Well, it's great. And it's great cross-pollination of sectors, too, because, of course, security is very large, but there is perhaps a trend towards getting ahead of the curve. And so looking at these pre-indicators, what problem are we trying to solve here? Where where does this really fit in? Well, I, I think it fits almost everywhere. And I say that when we're talking about maybe attacks, you know, different kinds of attacks, because um when we when we look at the post reports, post incident reports, and things like that, you almost always find out that there were indicators. And I, by indicators, I mean red flags, warning signs, concerning behavior, suspicious activities, things like that. So we're, we kind of always, you know, read about them in the paper, or like it's not the paper, probably online these days. But I'm just saying. But we read about them. Uh, there's reports like um, the National Threat Assessment Center just came out and said. They studied 173 mass attacks in public spaces, and all 100% of the 180 attackers exhibited pre-incident indicators. So isn't that crazy? 100% of them exhibited pre-incident indicators in those 173 attacks. Which which is really important if you're you know in the world of celebrity bodyguarding, um, there'll there'll be there'll be you know fixated individuals to look out for, but in the wider picture uh, as well. Um, but obviously we're delighted to have you on, but. Tell us a bit about yourself. Where does your passion for this come from? You know, it goes, I guess it goes all the way back to when I was in sixth grade. Um, I was in a, a gifted class, if you will. And then we were in the same building with the special needs students. And kids used to always bully and just bug this, this gal. And, and I call her MJ. And um, she would have seizures. And it was really scary for her and us and everything else. And I was a a little dude back then, I'm still a little guy, but a little dude. And uh, I just kind of said, you know, this isn't right. Got sort of stepped in and, and got some help from what I call now first preventers. Um, but we got involved and, um, you know, I got my teacher involved and I, and we basically were able to stop these, this bullying and these attacks. And so it just started then. And then um, I guess what really got me going was um, in 1999 when Columbine took place. Uh, the shooting, school shooting. I had a daughter in about, you know, that was in school at that age. And it really got me thinking, it's like, well, what, how did this happen? How, why was it not prevented? Those kind of things. And so it started my, since basically 1999, I've been researching uh, incidents on an ongoing basis, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them trying to figure out where prevention, where and why prevention failed. Now that's, that's really, really key because you want to learn from these mistakes and and often security professionals either don't or don't have the time or inclination maybe to 
learn from it. And, and just some of those uh, words and, and, and terms you were using, you said first preventers um, and, uh, and incident mitigation. I think that's that's tied into the, the whole structure that you've been developing. So why don't I formulate that into a question for our EP community? Imagine I am a protector uh, and I've never considered this. I'm uninitiated in this topic. Um, what should I better understand about this pre-incident uh, first presenter uh, preventer kind of kind of model? Yeah, good question. And I think that for executive protection, I think the the question might be how many times or how often maybe um, do you have maybe a near miss? you know, with your client or some sort of incident, maybe not a tragedy or anything like that, but, you know, some sort of incident. And then how many times do you find out after that incident that there were, you know, I call them pre-incident indicators, but again, those warning signs, whatever, but maybe that other people were, were aware of, but they were not. The executive protection expert was not. And and that's not a knock on any executive protector. There's no doubt about it. I'm just saying that they just didn't know and, and I'm just curious, like how often, and that's one of the questions we like to ask is how often do you have a near miss or how often do you find out that somebody else was aware of some of these things, but you weren't. So how do we, how do we address that gap? I call it a blind spot too at times, but how do we address that gap between what others know and what the executive protection expert needs to know or professional needs to know? Mm. Does that make sense? No, it, it makes sense, but it but it raises that balance question because I, I guess needs to know and doesn't know not often comes in the same ballpark because you know if 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 I need to know, I, I suppose let's say I'm in Vegas and in a given hotel, I, I I would do well to know every single person in that hotel and all their motives, rather tall order. And so there's there's what's available to me. I guess how can we strike that balance um, be- between the absolute optimum, which would be complete visibility, and and what's on the table for the protector? Yeah, good question. And obviously, you're not going to know everybody in a you know huge environment like Vegas or any other you know sporting events or concerts or you know other types of things too. But but hopefully, what um, what we've learned and from some of these, like you said, the the lessons learned. What my goal is is try to to take my research and these lessons learned and try to help people turn them into lessons implemented, right? Because lessons learned are just, I mean, they're good to know, I guess, <laughs> but if they aren't turned into a lesson implemented, then we're probably gonna make the same mistakes again and again and again, um, or have the same gaps show up. It may not be a mistake. It just may be a gap that it continues, right? That blind spot. So, but I think the key thing back to your question is, is that for executive protecting protector um professionals is how do they like the people you know the person or the group that they are protecting what are who are the people closest to them you know that might have additional information and then who are again like you mentioned earlier i think we were talking about before you know about stalkers and things like that typically they've given some sort of indicators that they are you know, tracking, stalking, whatever. And so how do we start learning about those? I use the term at-risk individuals. That's just what I use, sort of a generic term. But how do we find out more about those at-risk individuals, whether that's from social media, whether that's from their friends and family, whether that's from, you know, previous incidents, whether that's from, you know, previous behaviors, things like that. And then how do we bring that together so we can see that bigger picture? If you kind of think of it as puzzle pieces, right? The more puzzle pieces you have, the easier it is to see what that bigger picture might be versus if you only have one or two, it's kind of hard to figure out what you're working with or what you're dealing with. Does that make sense? It, it does, but then, but then it leads me to think, does this have to happen at the strategic level, i.e. above, quote unquote, the pay grade of the solo operator, or can anyone do it? I guess, you know, maybe, maybe there's three tiers. There's the uh, customer facing uh, ground operator. There's maybe a divisional leader, a team leader, something strategic. And then there's outside consultants with much more uh, time on their hands. W- where does this fit? 
Well, it could probably fit anywhere, to be honest with you, because what it is is that uh, what we've basically built as far as a solution based on the research and lessons learned is, is that we have to have a, a central community-wide or even could be more than the community. It could be, again, if you're working with a global almost, but but it's it's got to be a central way to bring all this information together. And so what we've tried to build or and what we have created is basically a central platform so that as an individual, as a team, as corporate, whoever, so that they can gather all these pieces of the puzzle, or some people say connecting the dots, you know, that kind of a thing. So gather all these pieces of the puzzle and have them in a central secure location that not only that individual can access and remind themselves of these different things that are out there um, because, you know, they may have seen something online or seen something in an email or seen something in a spreadsheet or seen something wherever verbally, whatever. And, you know, it's hard to remember all that stuff, right? All those pieces of the puzzle. So this is a central secure, confidential access rights. Everything's built into it so that, we can help them in privacy and things like that so that only the individual or the team members or whoever they choose to be to help them with this effort, they can see all this information that they've collected from different sources so that they can see this bigger picture about this at-risk individual, for example. So it's sort of updated police officers big book there that you know i i hear stories back in the day quote unquote of a police station and there'd be this big book and someone would write i saw this in the book and you know and and yeah maybe it's not that uh efficient but people would write it in the book so maybe maybe that kind of methodology yeah it's i mean that's a good example because uh we see it all the time where people write stuff down or they you know send themselves an email and i don't i don't know about your inbox and most people's inbox it's kind of a kind of a mess at times, right? And trying to find things. So, um, but yeah, it's it's basically saying, okay, what, and the thing is with an at-risk individual, for example, maybe law enforcement does have information, right? But um, they can share it if there's, if this at-risk individual is a risk to someone, them, themselves or someone else. But the thing is how they share it is key. I mean, they can't just email it perhaps because it's, not encrypted, it's not secure, it's not, you know, all, all those kind of privacy, confidentiality, those things aren't there. But when you have a secure platform and a way for them to share that information, it may be a police report, it may even be redacted a little bit. But the point is, is it's a piece of the puzzle that we don't have that we might need about that individual so that we can start understanding what their motives are, understanding what their their background, because a lot of times people will repeat some of those behaviors, but if you don't know about the behaviors, then it's hard for you to understand where they might be, you know, how they might act or how they might, some of the actions they've taken. So um, whether it's mental health, whether it's law enforcement, whether it's, um, you know, previous behaviors from even going back to school type of a thing, um, mm. those things, family behaviors. I mean, we look at some of these things that have happened in the news and we find out that you can go way back several years and find out, oh, well, this was happening. <clears throat> this created a grievance. This person has a grievance. That term gets used a lot, so I'll, I'll use it. But they have a grievance or an infatuation, you know, whatever, but um, exists. Well, they usually talk about it. Maybe not always, you know, to other people or online or whatever. They talk about it. So it's public. It's just that those sources of information aren't always collected. Yeah, I like this. And uh, you you may not, obviously, because you, you, you're you not in the EP world, you know, per se, but you, you we, we have had a very interesting uh, session with Philip Grindle, formerly of the Met Police, talking about fixated individuals. And I, I think one of the questions uh, there was, well, if we collect this data, how do we process it? How do we share it? So so this is an, a nice tie-in. And we had a session with Dr. Gav Snyder from Australia talking about pre-resilience. And I think maybe that was saying, by the way, this is also your job as a protector to get ahead of the curve. So this is now, I suppose, the logical step in, you know, I'm, I'm trying to help our audience, you know, cite where this, uh, you know, pre-indication uh, work fits. This is the logical step in that. But so now what? Um, and and I, I and I guess 
we've also been talking on the podcast about, you know, should we have in our team a special data analyst uh, or should we all be data analysts or should we have a, a third party system? Um, tell you what, why don't I ask you to bring some of the case studies that you've been working on to life to the extent that you're allowed to? Can, can you give us a flavor of some of the projects? You, you said you've been looking at hundreds. Um, has anything particularly stood stood out? Any Anything anecdotal that you think that uh, would bring this to life? Yeah, I think there's some things that that I mean, there's my focus, as you as you mentioned, my focus has really been more because of my passion about child safety. Right. And so has been about school shootings and things like that, but not just school shootings. It's been about, um, you know, human trafficking, suicide and other things as well. Um, but it's also been about attack. You know, bullying is kind of attacks on other people, kind of like so it's, it's not the same as executive protecting, but it's it's people attacking people, mm. right? Or, and again, it could be an infatuation where they're trying to stalk them and, and things like that. So, but one of the things that, I'm, and again, I'm guessing here um, to a certain extent, but a lot of times with executive protection, they may not always have, especially if they're solo, like you mentioned, or um, a smaller team or whatever, they may not, may not always have that data analyst, for example, on their team, right? But when they have the capability and the tools to bring all the data together, and we run into this with schools and organizations as well, that their team just doesn't have all the resources within that school or within that organization or within that whatever. So outside third-party experts, the beauty of our platform, since it's web-based, is, is that you can add in and you control who these people are. You could add in a specialist and they could be you know, from Australia and you're in the U S um, doesn't matter where they are because now they can log in and they could look at some of this, these indicators, you know, some of these behaviors, some of these behavioral assessments, some of these mental health assessments or other things like that. If those are, or part of the, the pieces of the puzzle um, and they can help analyze or assess, if you will, what that means because not everybody's a behavioral assessment specialist right not everybody's should, a mental you, health specialist but, but you should be comfortable more these days um at least meeting with them i i, I frequently talk with uh, internal investigations or investigators and they go oh uh i'm not ep i'm like no but you definitely should be talking to ep um you know the the, the dialogue should be there but but I, I wonder, could you, I mean, some of the incidents would probably be quite sensitive, but are there any incidents that you could share that you've been looking into a case study, something, some, some, something where you've looked at those pre-indicated factors? Yeah, I can talk about a couple of things. I, and again, they're not maybe exact matches, but they're um, like, for one, I can talk about is, do you remember the, um, the bombing in downtown Nashville on Christmas day, a couple of years ago? Mm. So Here's an example of an ex-girlfriend walks into police and says, my ex-boyfriend is building bombs in his RV. Turns out that was a pretty good tip, right? Because most of the community were told to call law enforcement when we have, you know, see something, say something, those kind of things, right? So she did. And law enforcement, local law enforcement, you know, went out to the house, couldn't find anything. I mean, they could, couldn't go in because they didn't really have enough information, but they, they had what they had. They had one piece of the puzzle, right? Um, they called the FBI and did background checks and things like that on this individual. And he didn't really have any record of anything like that. Well, then that was a few months before he went and blew up downtown Nashville. Now, I'm not picking on any of the law enforcement or anybody in any of these stories. I'm not blaming, not pointing fingers. All I'm saying is, is that what could have happened. And if we look at like, even with shooters, like the Buffalo shooting where the, the kid went and told a school he wanted to be a shooter. And then they gave him to police police. There was no crime. Just like with this bomb, there was no crime yet. So law enforcement couldn't really do anything. Their hands are tied. And again, not knocking them. It's just they can't do anything until there's a crime. And by the time there's a crime, it's too late. But what they can do, whether it's the shooter of Buffalo or this bombing or, or, or many, many other examples, is, is that when you have a community-focused platform or a, where you have a relationship with executive, like you said, 
let's have these executive protection uh, professionals meet with law enforcement, meet with uh, mental health, all these, because when they have those connections and they have a way to share that information, it'd be very, it would have been easy for the law enforcement to basically put this piece of the puzzle into the platform and maybe social workers could have gone out and tried to connect with this individual to help out, even though law enforcement couldn't go any further. Now, again, that may not be a perfect example of executive protection, but it seems like executive protection, I mean, they're focused on what they're doing. They don't always have time to go out and do all these other things, but they could leverage other resources potentially in the community where this individual's from, the family members, things like that. So we see that over and over and over again, whether that's bullying in schools, whether that's suicide, whether that's, you know, again, shootings, whether that's attacks, workplace violence, you know, kind of attacks on people. There are sometimes attacks on managers, attacks on bosses, whatever. Um, we see it over and over and over again. So it's really, how do we get these pieces of the puzzle in a place where it can be shared with other resources? Because it's not just about connecting the puzzle pieces. It's about connecting the resources that also exist and the other sources of information. So it's information, it's sources, and it's resources. And how do we connect all three, if you will, three, I simplified it, but it could be mm -hmm. hundreds of pieces of the puzzle, right? But how do we connect those so that we can actually, and it's not hard to do, it really isn't. I mean, it sounds complicated. I know it sounds like, gosh, we could never do that, but it's, it's actually simple because people want to, people would rather prevent things than respond to things. Right. And so that's where everybody can be a first preventer, meaning I'm happy to help. I'm happy to give my input based upon I know this or I this is my expertise. I can help with this or this is I'm a social worker. I can go out and talk to this at risk individual, you know, things like that. And then whatever information they collect. They put back into the piece of the you know into the platform so we continue to build a bigger picture based upon these at risk individuals so that we're not sort of just out there, you know, doing the best we can and hoping they don't do something and then hoping we're not surprised. Does that make sense? It, it makes sense, but I do worry that if we're too successful at prevention, then we'll be out of a job because then the client or a you know, big company will say, wow, nothing ever happens. And you're like, yeah, because I've been preventing it. How can you prove that you're preventing it? Or is that like how long is a piece of string? You know, because because I, I, I worry for the super successful preventer that they can't basically prove anything. That's a great question. We hear that a lot. Um, and first of all, we'll never prevent everything. So I don't want to give that impression at all. Uh, we're always going to need first responders and, you know, people to law enforcement, things like that to come in because we'll never prevent everything. However, we do know that you know, from, again, from schools and organizations and communities that we work with, we do know that when an at-risk individual is identified and when enough pieces of the puzzle have been collected and they go out and they find out that this person does have a, a plan, a written out plan, and they do have maybe access to like guns, for example, or knives or whatever their weapon might be. Um, or even if it's maybe they're uh, online, you know, they're attacking someone online reputation-wise. Uh, that may be their weapon, if you will. But we know that um, when people find these things, they you've probably heard the term, the uh, pathway to violence, mm. okay? And that's been around for a long time. I look at it as a pathway to prevention. I mean, if there's a pathway, why do we have to wait for the violence to occur? But if we don't have enough pieces of the puzzle along the way, that's why we don't, right? So... We can, you know, prove maybe a, a strong word, I don't know, but I mean, you can easily see when you do have these pieces of the puzzle that some of these individuals, they had a plan to attack. However, they were going to attack, they had a plan and they had the resources and they were escalating towards that point. We interrupted that, or not we, but the, our clients, mm. they interrupted that, that pathway to violence. And so, and here's the other thing that's important too, is that so many times we see where individuals were maybe, um, you know, identified, maybe even arrested, maybe, um, you know, identified as being a threat and then they de-escalate, but then they re-escalate. And again, that's why it's also so important to have all these pieces of the puzzle where they just don't go away after somebody starts de-escalating. We need to have those sources 
those other sources and resources continue. Again, it could be social workers, friends and family, whatever, who have a way to, and we use a, a butterfly icon, the butterfly effect, one small thing can save a life, save a friend. And so it's not snitching, it's helping. And when they use the butterfly, like the an executive protection or wherever, they could have a butterfly on their webpage and people could go to that and give information anytime, 24 seven. And now that information is, those pieces of the puzzle are being collected on an ongoing basis, or it could come from law enforcement. It could mm -hmm. come from these other resources and sources that they've connected with. So, you know, it's, like I said, it's, it's doable. We're doing it. Uh, it's amazing. Uh, I should mention too, on that butterfly effect, we kind of, you know, we did a lot of surveys when we were working with schools and kids were like, I don't want to snitch. Well, it's not just kids that don't want to snitch. Adults don't like to snitch either. Right. But as soon as we flipped the, the, you know, on a website, for example, from a, a tip line, which sounds like snitching to a helpline with the butterfly effect, the number of the pieces of puzzle or the number of incident reports went way up Cause, because cause, people want to help. I cannot see that working on, let's say, a private EP contractor website, but I can see it working on, let's say, a venue website where you hear either or absolutely. Oh, oh dear, this this uh, celebrity, um, my friend is saying he's he's going to marry this celebrity, you know, and 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 I can see. Uh, especially here in the UK, we got this new Martin's Law, and many people in the community will know about it because uh, Martin's mother has has tirelessly campaigned for it, and it's, it's finally there to harden event venues. So I I don't know. Maybe maybe there could be uh, on corporations' websites. You know, please report um, aspects of of this, and then that could be fed through to the relevant individuals. Because if I'm a solo uh, EP operator, I only really need what I need to know unless I'm doing an advance or unless I'm looking at the system. So I guess your work with awareity fits into the, well, you distill it and give it to me. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah, it, I mean, it, it's kind of that approach. Yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, it could certainly be for the the venue. Um, and I, I, I think it could still be for the, the EP person too, just because once they connect with like friends and family of an at-risk individual, for example, if that's part of what they've done with their homework so far or whatever, or their, their pre-work, um, you know, then they can always let these people know that, Hey, just come to our website. If you got something let me know, you know, because a lot of times when you talk to people or even if they talk to the individual um, you know, the, the point is, is that, People don't always maybe say something at the time, but they may become aware of something later or mm. scared later or, you know, realize that what they saw was actually a threat, not something, you know, I mean, especially we see that with parents of individuals and, and things like that or friends. They, they don't always want to see something evil in someone, but uh, if it is evil, but I'm just saying but they don't want to see it. So they might not always want to volunteer it, but if you give them a maybe a way to do it where they can do it on their own time. And when they see it, then it can happen. So, but the beauty is it can be placed anywhere. The, you're absolutely correct. Could be a venue, could be EP, could be whatever. And that's the only way we're going to start getting that information into a, a centralized location. So it can be analyzed and the bigger picture is seen. So with the plethora of tools and the plethora of information and, the, and, and, you know, that the, the poor protector is just thinking how can I know it all? There's lots of solutions out there. So what are your thoughts on the promise of AI, quote unquote? Um, not saying that we've got the event horizon, not saying that it's truly there, but we have PredPol in the UK. We've got um, some Palantir systems that are doing a great job, you know, doing predict predictive uh, intelligence. Are we there? Like, are we really there in that realm? I think AI has a role. I don't think that it's ever going to replace human intelligence. Artificial intelligence and human intelligence need to both be in play. Um, because artificial intelligence, they can't always, you know, it can't always, like a camera can't always interpret a behavior. Or, you know, and it doesn't really have, AI doesn't really have gut feeling per se. Um, and... You know, again, I'm not knocking it. I'm just saying that I think that it's uh, maybe 
maybe beyond my lifetime, maybe it'll collect, have some of those capabilities. I don't know, but I'm just saying right now, not, not even close. Um, now it can detect things like guns, you know, AI can do maybe some through cameras and things like that because it knows what it's looking for, but there is no profile of some of these individuals to know what they're going to do. So it's hard for AI to, it, it has to kind of almost know what's out there and what to look for. It has to be programmed, if you will, to kind of know what to know. <laughs> Whereas human intelligence, you know, we have those feelings, we have that insight, we have that, those kind of things where we can bring that together. And, and I do want to mention, because it's, it's very important, I kind of, and this ties in with this, is that think about all the incident reporting options out there today, right? There's like here in the States, see something, say something. Hmm. And it's at federal level, it's at state level, it's at local level. You've got other hotlines, you've got law enforcement, you've got um, apps, you've got texts, you've got all these different things, right? Hotlines, phone numbers, all kinds of things. And then there's specialized ones for maybe suicide or weapons or whatever, gangs, drugs, whatever. The What we've kind of done over the years is we've created all these different hotlines and reporting options, but they're all silos. Mm. Right. So people will say, well, it's an issue reporting problem. Well, it kind of is, but it really isn't. It's really more of how do you bring all those instant reporting silos? Where do they go? Right. So like, even with something like, um, and I'm going to use this example because it's documented, but you know, the Parkland school shooting in, in Florida, um, in the, in the U S here, people did call, see something, say something, two people did. And it went into those, that silo. And again, I'm not picking on anybody. I'm just reporting the facts here, but it went into that silo, but it didn't get back to the school. So the school knew what they knew. The FBI knew what they knew. Local law enforcement knew what they knew from all their hotlines and everything else. Nobody knew what everybody else knew. And that's where this platform is, is the glue, <laughs> if you will, to bring together those sources, resources, and indicators and have that secure way to do that. Because FBI, and we're doing this with some of our clients, for law enforcement, they're putting stuff into the platform so that the school's aware of it. Because if, if the school, I mean, I begin back to Parkland, they didn't know that the law enforcement had been to that shooter's house over 30 times. The school didn't know that. Now, back to the FBI thing too, that see something, say something. They actually ended up settling for $127.5 million. The FBI paid a settlement to Parkland, the victims, because you know the, the instant reports didn't go through. They sat in a mm -hmm. silo. So a precedent has been set. So I bring this up because as an EP, you know, there's so many different ways for people to report things. How does this EP, if it's a solo or a team or whatever, how do they, how are they getting all this information? And if they, how do they, do they have a secure, confidential, encrypted way to receive it so that they can actually see it and use it? So do you think that we need to do a bit of systems thinking? We need to, we need to in a way, restructure any team, any security team. Because at the moment, many security teams are hierarchical. So someone at the top is the strategist, they are the disseminator, the director, and we've got all this workforce management software. It's all about uh, deploying the drones, right? And and it's not really giving the, uh, the individuals much agency. Whereas... The, the 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 thing that strikes me with going and and even when we were talking to Gav Snyder you know uh, last year, how do we get an operator to be proactive if we don't allow them to be proactive? Because th there's a lot of management speak, isn't there? You know, work on your communication skills. It, it's sort of said because you don't know what else to tell people. Um, and you know the other the other aspect, you need to be more proactive. Well, I can be proactive if I'm not going to get shut down. Or if I'm not going to get fired, do we have to change the structure of a security team or organization to make this work? In some cases, absolutely, uh, we do. And we work with teams to address some of those, you know, policies, procedures, regulations, things like that, you know, that they've got in place, right? I, I call them recipes. 
it's and I mean that in a good way. Um, it's like if I gave you a recipe on how to, to make the best, the world's best chocolate cake. Okay. But if I didn't give you the ingredients and the tools, you'd never get there. Mm. And, and that's kind of where we are in a lot of these cases is that sometimes we have to retool it. Yes. Like you said, maybe it's, but it's the, the team might be the ingredients, right? But do we have the ingredients and then do we, do we give our team members the tools they need to go do this stuff? In other words, to make the cake, I like to call it. Um, but you know, that's, what's missing. And that's what that intact report just came out and basically said that, you know, violence is preventable when communities are equipped with the appropriate tools, training, and resources. That's pretty much exactly what they said. And I agree because that's what's missing most of the time is they don't have the tools to connect all the different sources, resources, and information together. And especially when you look at all the different hotlines out there, they don't have a way to bring it together. But, okay, and this is playing devil's advocate. Isn't that a limit to how proactive we're going to allow anyone to be because we could cause duplication. Um, let's say we send it, you know, it never happens, right? But let's say I'm giving a team five days notice. By the way, in five days, you're going to be deployed to this mission. Let's say protecting this uh, singer. They all go and be very proactive. Like, how do we make that coordinated? Because if if we just let them go pre, 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 proactive, we'll find out they've all phoned the same people or they phoned random people. They've set hairs racing. Um, how, how in practice do we stop duplication and, and find the, the limits to proactivity? So I, I think if I'm understanding correctly, I mean, there's a couple of ways you, I mean, certainly with any team, you have to have roles, responsibilities. So, I mean, you've got, you'd have your team members with their, you know, the recipe or the roles, responsibilities, whatever, and, and they'd be contacting. So they're not duplicating, maybe calling the same people um, and things like that and duplicating their efforts, but they would certainly do their homework, do their pre preliminary things like that. Um, but then that information that's gathered again, if, if you gather something and I gather something and somebody else gathers something, how do we know? How do I know what, you know, how do you know what I know? How does this other person know what we both know? And, and I think there's a lot of duplication a lot of times because I don't always know what you know, so I have to call the people that you called. So how do we you know, streamline that? That's where this platform comes in is when you bring in that information from what you gather, you put it into the platform. When I do, when the other person does, however many team members there are. And then that's how we're bringing those pieces of the puzzle, if you will, each of those being, I call them puzzle pieces, but I mean that information, those indicators, those preliminary things. And when we put that all in together, now we all see it. Now, again, the platform is set up so that if us three are the ones who are, you know, uh, have the access rights to be able to see it. Good. If we, if maybe I don't, the other two do, maybe I'm just an inputter. That's mm. fine. Only you two maybe have access to being able to see the puzzle pieces. Right. So the teams are set up in such a way, and it doesn't matter what kind of team it is, we help them to identify and say, okay, which people need to see this information, which people then can take this information, and maybe they're trained, trained, I mean, to meaning that they know what kind of intervention, disruption, prevention actions that they can take or allowed to take, those kind of things. But again, again, just using this third party that's not on the screen, I get it, but I'm just saying, but if if I'm just an inputter, just, I don't mean that in a bad way, but I'm just saying, if I'm just an inputter, I can put that in the platform, but you and this other person would be the only two people that'd be able to have access rights to see it. But then that way, the you two would be able to see what each other have brought in, as well as what I've brought in, as well as maybe what a third party has brought in, because we made communications with them previously and said, hey, if you see something change with this at-risk individual, could you please let us know? They go click the butterfly, put it in there, and now it's in the platform also. So it's it's a way to collect, if you will, and then funnel and share the information with the appropriate team members mm. so that they can actually access it. And it does eliminate a ton of duplicated efforts. And 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 I hadn't considered, so I so I appreciate it. I hadn't considered, of course, you can be proactive. It 
you know a lot but it but it doesn't mean that everyone sees all data at all times it means that still there will be a team leader or someone to disseminate a specifically relevant data okay i i, I can see how that would make it more streamlined um so i i i i guess with all of this um is there is there maybe a subset of education some people could embark on? Um, what about yourself? Are you a data scientist? Um, uh, would you call yourself that? You know, should should everyone nowadays be such a such a person? Well, I guess I t I gave myself the title of pre-incident prevention specialist. Okay, to really focus on the pre-incident side of things. Um, you know, I've been doing research as I mentioned since '99, basically 1999. Um, I did write a book called The First Preventer's Playbook. Uh, it's based on that research. So it's mo more of a playbook, meaning that, as I mentioned earlier, it's like turning lessons learned into lessons implemented. So the goal of the book was to share what some of these common, I call them GSDs, gap silos and disconnects, to share what these common gap silos and disconnects are. So if people recognize them and go, we have those two, how do we address them? So, I mean, that's that's one way. Um, certainly, I, I write a lot of blogs and stuff, too. I do videos and all kinds of things. If you go out to awarity.com, you can certainly find those. Um, but, I mean, my goal is, like I said, I'm passionate. I realize that uh, a lot of people don't have time to do the research. Um, and that's why I want to share it. That's why I want to share. And then that's why when I started doing this way back in 99, we started creating these tools back in 2010-ish or even before that, actually. Um, just because I couldn't find any tools that were actually doing all that collecting, funneling, sharing, access rights, connecting the dots, all these things in, in a platform that was community-wide, not just organization-wide or department-wide, community-wide, because that's where all the sources and resources are typically are in the community. And I, when I say community, I don't mean a, necessarily a physical community. It could be a virtual community as well, right? So, so we built the tools and then that's what we're doing. And I just continue to try to share as much as I can. So, so would you say that most security professionals are good to go, or is there some remedial like threat intel classes, or I don't know? I'm 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 clutching at straws. But like, imagine I'm a protector, and I I say, do you know what? I love this. I just wanna I want to be more grounded in this field. Um, would you say? Most tools today are plug and play. Don't worry about it. It's got a good graphic user interface. Off you go. Or is there is there some sort of direction in training that you might advise them in? Yeah, I, I get your question now. So um, we do, like with any client, we do what we call our first preventers training. Okay. And because, again, a school is going to be different than an EP, which is different than a workplace violence, which is different than a community. I mean, so we have to adjust that training typically to what they're doing because there's some general stuff, but it, you know, it's like all general training. It's like, it doesn't go deep enough typically, right. For what their specific needs might be. So yes, we do offer training, not necessarily. I mean, it's a good idea. Maybe we should look into that providing more first preventers training just in general, but most of our training right now has been focused on that client and what their specific needs are so that they understand how to use the tools and not just how to use the tools, but how to connect with sources and how to connect with resources, how to address like even having MOUs and things like that in place, you know, the policies, procedures, the recipes, the roles, responsibilities. So we, we do a lot of that with our clients today. Okay, I guess. Yeah, it would it would definitely depend on the, the subsector. And, you know, maybe one one client would want something different. So suddenly the skill set changes. Um. So, so, so what's next for you? Uh, where can people find you? And uh, have you, have you got any more books, any more publications coming out? Uh, there's been a couple of uh, publications out there, but mostly the book, which you can go to awarity.com is probably the best place to find the, the blogs and, and things like that. Um, you can go to rickshawprevents.com. That's where you can see my book and more information just about me individually. Those are the two places I would go to. Um, the book you can get it on amazon or whatever and again i'm not necessarily trying to sell books i'm just saying if you want like i call it the you know there's cliff notes i call it the rick notes 
<laughs> the Rick notes of you don't have time to do 20 years of research. We'll go, go get the book and do the, the you know, the short version, if you will. Um, but, but that's the key because a lot of people just don't realize what some of these gap silos and disconnects really are. And it's a blind spot. It's like when you're driving, you got a blind spot, right? When you're driving and you're over kind of over here behind, you know, which side you're both sides really, I guess, but a mirror with the right mirror can help you see that blind spot. Right. And um, that's kind of what we're talking about here is once you have the right tools, you can eliminate the blind spots of this person knew this, this person knew this, and you knew this, but nobody knew what each other knew. And that's, I'm oversimplifying, but that's what gets us in trouble more times than not. And then on the flip side of that, or the, the other thing we're seeing that's important, I believe, and I think it would be in the EP world too, is um, you don't want to get sued. Lawsuits are, are soaring. And if you can prove that you are taking the appropriate steps because you had the appropriate information, that's going to help. We can't prevent everything, like I said. But when they start, the attorneys have started to really address the fact that, so this person knew this and this person knew this and this person knew this and you didn't know what they know. Mm. Now you're, now you're in some potentially um, more of a liability, uh, more expensive liability, if you will. So that's the other thing that's sort of evolving right now is the lawsuits. I mean, I don't know if people, a lot of people don't realize this, but um in column Columbine, they settled for 2.5 million. The victims did victims family. That was in 2000, roughly after the Uvalde school shooting in Texas, they filed a 27 billion with a B class action lawsuit. Now I don't mm. know if they're going to get it, but I'm just saying the point is 2.5 million to 27 billion. That's an escalation. <laughs> and that's where we're going. And that's, so, that speaks a lot to the celebrity uh, bodyguarding world. Um, without mentioning any case studies, um, EP have a mysterious extra power of cancelling the concert uh, whilst it's in motion if they believe that something is, uh, you know, badly going wrong. And there have been some interesting lawsuits uh, at some interesting concerts for some tragic stuff. So everyone in the community knows what I'm talking about. So, so I won't really elaborate on it, but yeah, I think, I think that is a, an interesting next step to take a pre uh, indicator uh, information. Um, Cause of course, if you documented it, did you act on it? Did you know about it? If you didn't? Yeah. So that, that, that is, that is, that, that is an interesting one. Yeah. It's, you know, people use the term CYA, I guess. Right um yeah cover your assets right but anyways um but yeah no it's it's very important to have that documentation to prove that you know you knew what you knew and you did what you did and and again we can't prevent everything um but at least having the documentation i call it legal ready and and in insurance ready because insurance is getting more expensive too um you know so being able to to show that you're taking these steps i think are well they're already proven to be helpful with some of our clients absolutely Perfect. Well, I tell you what, then it's been lovely talking to you. Lovely cross pollinating. Everyone knows I love cross pollinating. Um, looking Absolutely. at pre indicators, um, and uh, and 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 I, I really look forward to welcoming you to to one of our uh, next uh, corporate security or EP uh, events. So we've been looking at pre incident indicators, helping us with prevention. Uh, I'm very grateful that uh, Rickshaw, you've you've been able to give so much of your time to the Circuit Magazine podcast. Well, thank you very much to Rickshaw for sharing that with us. I think it is a good cross-pollination, the idea of the first preventers model, the pre-incident prevention, and all of that, which ties to a lot of other topics that we've had on the podcast. Um, You know, I mentioned uh, already Dr. Gav Snyder's presilience. I I suppose, John, where does this then leave us? Because there are a lot of tech solutions out there that are marketed, sometimes wrongly, sometimes rightly, to the protector, um, which protector is this most relevant to? Yeah, well, that's a good question. And, you know, I, first off, I'm I'm a big fan of tech. 
I'm, you know, very curious and always uh, keen to see the different applications for it and how it can be used to uh, enhance the work that we do. And, you know, the, so, so I, you know, I'm fully on board with, uh, you know, exploring this further. I can definitely see how this can work in large teams, you know, big corporates and so on, especially where there's lots of points, uh, data sources, lots of data points uh, coming in. And you need to manage that because they would, you know, potentially get missed and, you know, you might miss a threat where, you know, look, if, if we look at whenever we do uh, post incident reviews and we see them in the news and so on, we we always go to, you know, how was this missed? And more often than not, it's usually because it, it there wasn't just a good centralized source that handled this information Uh you know, build the patterns of life and then disseminated it to the right people at the right time, right? So I'm all for having that so long as it's manageable and and I think uh, and scalable and, and and I think those are the issues that we are still uh, contending with and need convincing on. And as and as tech evolves and as people wear wearable tech, body cameras then more people become a data point. Uh, I, I just wonder whether everyone's an analyst or you just bring an analyst with you or is the team leader the analyst um, or maybe is AI the analyst? Well, yeah, it could, could well be AI soon, couldn't it? I mean, if we find a way to secure the information that we put into AI uh, that, that and to know that that can't be breached or certainly, you know, it's as secure as any other form of holding that data, then yes, you know, AI could probably be a good, low-cost, effective solution to manager, managing and monitoring all of that as well as disseminating it. Um, but yeah, I know it's probably still some way off, but look, you know, sort of underpinning all of this conversation and the, the one thing that I think is a really good takeaway are the actual uh, protector skills, the, the you know the physical skills, what you do on the ground, you know the observation and the reporting. I think that's all really useful, and it, it's good reminder, uh, you know, to harness those skills. And good hygiene for any post uh, operation review. You know, maybe maybe uh, insurance comes asking questions, maybe. The you know lawyers come asking questions as as I, as I spoke to with uh, with Rick. Um, well, that's always the worst thing about collecting data, isn't it? It's that it opens you up to so much litigation. I mean, just look at the black boxes that we put in our cars now to uh, keep mm. our insurance premiums down. You know, and that's like similar sort of mentality to the whole you know body cam recording. You know, everything from the moment you step out the door. It's tricky, isn't it? Um, well, maybe we need to do an entire session on, uh, I suppose, litigation. Anyway, we're, that is another topic, though. Um, interesting to look at pre-incident indicators. Um, the 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 getting ahead of the bang, left of boom. That's that's always very popular with the community. So uh, yeah, if you, if you like that, answers on a postcard. Let us know, and let's see how we can uh, develop it. Um, what have we got coming up, uh, John? Uh, yeah, the the what's coming up. You know, like my biggest thing is is the magazine. It's what I'm always working on to some degree or another. And, uh, you know, we've got all the content in uh, for this issue, but don't stop sending. Obviously, there's always the next one. Uh, and we'll be looking to get uh, issue 65 out some point this month in March. And I'm looking forward to it. Always, always a great uh, segments in there. And you know, I, I really like the artwork uh, and all the design, which which I know you have a massive hand in. So that's that's actually a delight for me. I I, I like to see the whole creative process come together. And I, no doubt our contributors are, are are very very impressed by how uh, you you shaped it up. So um, next week on the sixteenth of um, the uh, month March, uh, we have the. Corporate Security Modernization Forum Southwest. So I'm going to be seeing a lot of you virtually there. That's for people all the way from Texas to California, a bit of poetic license with the term Southwest. But we are looking forward to seeing you there. Uh, Chris Story, Chuck Randolph are going to be very kindly moderating some panels. So that's always great fun. Um, obviously, 
we mentioned it a few times, but 18th and 19th, uh, which is a weekend, is the Bodyguards for Kids uh, forum led by Chris and Danita Grove. Uh, that is absolutely a worthy cause for you to donate to and join us uh, virtually because lots of amazing speakers are giving their time away for you. But pre-incident indicators getting lifted. Boom. I hope this has opened your eyes and, uh, you know, your, your, your sort of appetite for learning more or at least uh, vetting a lot of this technology a bit more closely. And so that has been another fantastic edition of the Circuit Magazine podcast. You have been listening to the Circuit Magazine podcast. Be sure to subscribe and be sure to not miss an episode.